We're going to continue studying today about the evidence of God's grace in our life through the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at messages centered on theology since the beginning of this year, and we're going to continue on through the next year talking about what it is we believe and why we believe it. And we've been looking at the Holy Spirit now and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit for a long time. And today we continue. We understand and know that those who are filled with the Spirit will be thankful, that thankfulness is something that the Spirit brings about in our life. And one of the things that is tied to this that shows us the reason why we need to cultivate thankfulness is that if we're not careful and we're not thankful and full of gratitude for what God has done, we can develop a very harmful and toxic critical spirit, a critical spirit about God, a critical spirit about ourselves, and a critical spirit about others and with whom those that we need to relate. And so today I just want to talk to you for our remaining time about defeating that critical spirit and allowing thankfulness and gratitude to reign in our hearts. And I want to talk to you about how we could accomplish that by the grace of God. But before we do that, let's just pause another moment or two and, and pray together. Father, we come to you today as, as needy people who are completely dependent on your grace, who all come with a, a certain mess with us and brokenness, needing you to heal and fix that brokenness. We thank you for your grace that can accomplish that. We're thankful for your presence in us through the Holy Spirit that can generate thankfulness and gratitude instead of judgment and criticism. Teach us well, Holy Spirit, today these truths from the Word of God that we would look deeply into our own hearts and accurately into our lives and see whether or not we are obedient today. Help us to be quick today to see our own faults and to bring them to you, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation, restoration and wholeness. May we not waste this opportunity to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We pray that each of us would have a humble heart with a readiness to be doers of the word and not just hearers today. We ask you for this work in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most difficult defilements of the spirit is to deal with a critical spirit. A critical spirit has its root in pride. Because of the plank of pride in our own eye, we are not capable of dealing with the speck of need in someone else. We are often like the Pharisee who, completely unconscious of his own need, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. We are quick to see and to speak of the faults of others, but slow 
to see our own needs. How sweetly we relish the opportunity to speak critically of someone else, even when we are unsure of the facts. We forget that a man who stirs up dissension among brothers by criticizing one to another is one of the six things which the Lord hates. Someone has said that nine times out of ten, criticism is a defense mechanism. We criticize in others what we don't like in ourselves. So how many parents in the house today are guilty of that? You see things in your kids you don't like, and you're like, I know where they got that from. (laughs) I can't stand that, but then I go, man, it's me all over again. Thankfully, our children take more after their mother than they do me. Maybe some of you men feel the same way. Insecurity and jealousy can be a cause of someone having a critical spirit towards others. Focusing on men and not the Lord can cause one to be critical of every flaw of others. Satan is also the accuser of the brethren and sadly can work through or use believers to accomplish his work of tearing down. Those who are habitual fault finders Constant critics of people and situations usually are sick in the body and full of tension and stress. The scriptural solution to any of us struggling in this area is clear. Stop passing judgment on one another and start edifying and building others up. You know, it doesn't mean that you ignore or approve of the sins or the faults in other people whenever we talk about this. But it does speak to how one goes about engaging others who need healing because there's brokenness in their life. You can do that in the right way or you can do that in the wrong way. You can do it in such a way that will nurture and foster an environment of safety and growth or you can do it in such a way that fosters an environment and culture of fear and anxiety and even isolation. You see, the one approach would utilize grace and kindness and love like God showed us through Jesus. The other approach would be one of legalism, meanness, judgment, and criticism. One environment is conducive for growth while the other is conducive to fear and lack of growth. If we are to be a culture as Jenison Bible Church, this faith community that that fosters and encourages an environment of growth, that invites people to bring their mess to church, that, that allows people to speak of all the ugliness in their life with an assurance that it will be met with love and grace, if that's what we're doing, then we are defeating a critical spirit and we are winning and we are glorifying God. If we are not, we're losing. We're losing the battle against a critical judgmental spirit and may criticize ourselves right out of existence because after all, who wants to be a part of that kind of toxic environment? So today, I want to talk to you about something that is critical, literally. Critical to us, growing in grace. Critical to 
our faith community being a place that tells people and is known for inviting people in with whatever's wrong, because after all, the last time I checked, all of us were a mess. And then in a loving and gracious way, addressing those things without judgment, because we certainly do not stand in place of judgment, to help people grow and to help people become the disciple that God truly wants them to be. So there's kind of a two-pronged thing here going on today. It's for you. I hope that we all get help individually. But it's also for the ministry that we can have to other people. Someone mentioned this morning following the gathering that there were some truths that seemed to really connect with good counseling. And I hope that we see it that way because that's really a good way to apply this. We counsel ourselves, but then don't we also touch the lives of other people and counsel them too? And I hope that we'll utilize the truth today to do both, that we will grow, but that we will then also in the right way help other people to grow too. How can I have a heart that's full of gratitude, that is defeating on a daily basis as I interact with God and as I interact with others, this idea of a critical spirit? How can I do that? Well, let me give you some practical things on how to do this. The first one is this. I think in order to do this, we have to recognize our own faults. I mean, really recognize them for what they are. We have to recognize that we are all sinners. Some have been saved by grace, right? But that doesn't distinguish us necessarily from other people who are also sinners. We, we stand before God. If we are believers, we have that sin paid for him or one of his children, but we are still sinners. We're not suffering from the penalty of our sin anymore, but we still do wrong things, don't we? And if you look at the lives of some believers, you see sins in their lives like you see anywhere else. We're not immune from sin. We're still struggling with the residue of our depravity that hopefully is being renewed every day through the Word of God and our submission to the Spirit of God. But nonetheless, our life is still full of faults and sin. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 7 as he's teaching he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log or the plank, as some translations say, in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye? Hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're not told not to help people with the speck in their eye, but we're told to get our own house in order before we go about that business. Why? Well, first of all, it's going to be much better received, right? Because you go to try to help somebody, and you got something going on in your life, and they know it, and you're going to try to help correct them, and they're like, I'm not listening to this guy, right? Any of your kids ever pulled that one on you? right? Wait a minute, dad. Wait a minute. Remember, you did this. You've done that, right? You got to get your own house in order before you, you help somebody else get their house in order. Otherwise, the scripture says you're basically a hypocrite. Those who've developed a critical spirit, who have lost sense of the gratitude that they should have for the grace of God in their own life, don't reacquaint themselves often enough with their own faults. And they don't do the work on their own faults that they should in all humility and brokenness 
before they want to criticize and judge other people. You see, they've lost touch with being thankful for the grace of God in their own life. That tempers and filters the way that we relate to other people with their brokenness, and it's completely necessary for us not to develop this critical spirit. So how can we do this? Can I give you some things? Uh, these words will, will follow the term confess. If you want to write down the acrostic, you can write down these things. But the first thing we need to do is we need to be busy about confessing our own sins, right? I like what somebody said. They said, you know, there used to be this teaching that, that you hate the sin and you love the sinner, right? You've heard that. And they said, wait a minute, I don't have time to hate anybody else's sin because my own sin keeps me busy enough. I'm busy hating the sin in my own life. I'm not worried about hating the sin in somebody else's life. I like that because it reminds us of the importance of focusing on ourselves. You know, as we go through this teaching today, I hope that our minds don't wander into thinking about somebody else. Let's think about ourselves this morning. How do we fit? How does this fit into our lives? And are we truly confessing our sins? Lord knows we have plenty of them, right? 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that term means. I, we've, we've taught this before and you knew it before I taught it to you. It speaks about saying the same thing. That's a, literally what the word means there in 1 John 1. We say the same thing. We would say by application that it very well means that we agree with God about our sin. Just completely agree with him. We don't make excuses, right? We agree. And I pointed out to you before that David was a great example of this in Psalm 51. When Nathan came to him and pointed out that he was the man, right? He told him this story. And David pronounces judgment, right? This guy should face this horrible judgment. And Nathan goes, look, David, you're the man. <laughs> you're the guy in this story. David's broken about his sin, and he evidences the brokenness in Psalm 51, right? What does he do in Psalm 51? What does he do there that shows us that he got it, that he was humble, that he was celebrating God's grace in his own life and taking care of business in his own life? It's interesting to me all the personal pronouns that David uses in Psalm 51. He says, me and I, all through the passage. He owns it. He realized it was his mistake. There's also something just incredible to me in Psalm 51. Somehow David was well-informed about theology. And, and he's, he's looking into this. I don't know if this happened as he was writing Scripture or if he was tutored by God and he understood this concept. I don't know, but for someone to have this depth of understanding without the New Testament is amazing to me. And it shows the supernatural essence of the Word of God. What does he talk about that's so great? Well, he talks about being conceived in sin. And in, in sin, and, and, and he, what he's basically saying in the passage is, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's talking about depravity. Somehow David was informed about the depravity of man. I don't know how that happened, but he was. He wrote about it. I don't even know if he fully understood it completely. Some people think he did. Some people say, no, he didn't. Nonetheless, he wrote about it. Miraculous. The supernatural essence of the Word of God. David, an Old Testament saint, writing about the depravity of man in this way. He says, I'm not going to blame this on somebody else. I'm owning this. This is who I am. This is how I was born. I did this. 
I committed this sin, he says in Psalm 51. He, he totally owns that, right? The sin of adultery with Bathsheba. We continue to read in that passage and he uses some very strong terms for his actions. Wickedness, evil, sin, iniquity. All those were terms. Those are the same terms that God uses, aren't they, about sin. So he doesn't mislabel it. He, he labels it like God does. That's how we know that he agreed with God. Some of us are so busy disagreeing with God about our sin that we fail to be humbled by our sin, but yet we become critics of everybody else. And what it's going to take for us is agreeing with God and seeing just how bad we are before him and in desperate need of his forgiveness and restoration. Confess your sins, recognize your own faults, obey God's word as well. Let me go back. Obey God's word. Let us bring to bear the word of God on my situation. Let me see what God is teaching and let me obey that. Let me obey that about confessing my own sin. Let me obey it about how I approach others by taking care of my own sin. Obedience to God's word. And then no more guilt. No more guilt. The idea that many of us will do something in our past, and we might think back to our past. I, I had someone recently say as they were coming in to worship with us, they said, you know, I have a past. I said, great, you're in a good place. So do I, and so does everybody who is here today. Every one of us has a past. But if we've come before the Lord and we've confessed our sin and we've agreed with God about our sin, Part of managing that well in our lives, but also allowing other people to manage it well in their lives is understanding guilt. I do not have to carry the guilt of my previous life, something I did in the past, whether I was saved or unsaved. I do not have to carry that weight of guilt around with me for the rest of my life. Jesus sets me free from that. I can accept God's forgiveness even if I'm a believer and I sin, David did not have to walk around carrying the guilt of that sin with Bathsheba. He could confess it. God let it go. He forgave him. And David could continue without that guilt. We can do the same thing if we'll allow ourselves to do that. But what happens to many of us? We don't want to move on from that guilt for whatever reason. We keep it in our life and it depresses us and discourages us and could even defeat us. If we do that, you know what happens in our relationships to other people? We become critical of them too. And we want to take something that they did in their past and hold it against them for the rest of their life, not allowing them to escape the guilt from their actions either. You see, it's critical and important for us to get this theology right. It's not our business to hold on to the guilt from our past any more than it's our business to expect others and even to press on others the guilt from their past either. That's what a critical spirit does who has lost view of the grace of God in their own life. No more guilt. We also face the truth in all of this. That's the F in the acrostic. Face the truth. Face the truth about our own actions and face the truth about the actions of others. 
We don't deny the truth. We don't deny that something is wrong. And some of us are like, ah, you're telling us we're, we're going to be a little too soft on people. We're going to be a little too soft on sin. No, that's not what I'm saying. We face the truth. We face how bad things really are. We face how bad the sin really is in our own life and also in the lives of others. We do not do ourselves nor do we do anyone else a favor by making it less than what it is. You don't find that in Psalm 51 with David. He just calls it what it is. This is evil. This is wicked. This is iniquity and this is sin. He calls it what it is. He's facing the truth about his sin. We too do that. We too must do that as we clean our own lives up by the work of the Holy Spirit and cooperating with our own sanctification. And as we try to lead others to do the same, we don't avoid the truth. We don't deny the truth. We don't change the truth. We face it no matter what the sin is. And then we also ease the pain. That's the E. We ease the pain with the truth and the healing of the word of God. Some of us may have walked in here with something, and this is part of the guilt thing, but it's separate too because we're talking about pain in our life. Maybe someone sinned against you, or, or maybe you have sinned against someone, and there's just a lot of pain involved because of the consequences. I want to talk to you about it happening in your own life first. And this is something that is lost today. I think it's important for all of us to know this and remember this in the right way. But the consequences of sin are painful. You can confess your sin and agree with God about your sin, but still have to live through some horrific consequences. David had to do that after he penned the words of Psalm 51. His life was not easy after that. He suffered greatly for his infidelity. He even lost a child. We look at our own lives and we, we see where the consequences of sin have caused some pain because that's the way it is. There are consequences. Does it mean that God doesn't love us? Does it mean that God didn't forgive us? No, it doesn't mean that at all. He does love us and he does forgive us, but there is this truth that there are consequences for what we do, for what we say, for how we think. But even in those moments, we can ease the pain with the truth of the word of God. As we deal with the consequences, we need to know this. Number one, there is nothing that we can do that will make God love us any more or any less. And while we suffer through consequences and may deal with great pain, God still loves us and God is still present and he never leaves us or forsakes us. We need that for ourselves. We also need that when we deal with others too. We need to stop the blame. That's the first S. Stop the blame. Stop blaming others, our circumstances, our environment, what we have, what we don't have. David doesn't blame anyone in Psalm 51. In fact, he blames himself. He understands that he is the one who has done what is wrong. He was much different than Adam and Eve, wasn't he? In fact, Adam was really bold. You remember what Adam does? He says, God, it was the woman you gave me. Can you imagine blaming God being that bold about it? 
That's what happens when we don't confess our sin and agree with God about it. That, that's the kind of thing that happens. We, we could actually get this whole thing turned around to where we blame God. That's why James writes to us, I think, that God doesn't tempt men with evil. He can't be tempted with evil, but he's not in the business of being the tempter either. That's Satan's job. But God doesn't do that. We can't blame him. We can't blame anyone else or anything else or any place, anything we have or don't have. We have to own it. So stop the blame and start accepting God's forgiveness. Understand that it's freely offered. We accept it. It's applied. We can be restored reconciled. David talks about talking to other sinners in Psalm 51 too. Remember that language there? It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. And then the reason and the motivation for that is because he wants to talk to other people who have the same needs that he has. And he wants to minister to those whom he calls sinners in that passage. It's a beautiful story, cycle of falling in sin and then being restored through forgiveness and then being useful. It doesn't matter what's in your past. God's grace is bigger and greater than that and you can be restored and you are useful to God. There's no one here today who's useless because of something that's happened in their past. And you know what? That's true for the person sitting next to you too and we have to remember that. We have to stay in touch with that or we're going to become critical, angry, bitter people who judge others, who judge others, who, who don't think it's right for them to move on from their failures because of how bad they've been. I don't think that pleases God. And that certainly isn't a culture that can minister to a world that desperately needs Jesus. There is no hope or help in that line of thinking. There is no disciple-making in that kind of thinking. We might as well just hang a sign on the entrance to the parking lot that says, only perfect people welcome, if that's our attitude. So let's recognize our own faults in this way. Let us also, in closely related, remember from what we have been saved and forgiven like what Ephesians 4 reminds us of. Do you remember this? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Don't forget that you've been forgiven. Don't forget from what you have been saved and forgiven. One of the cool things that's going to happen, among, among many others, but one of the cool things that's going to happen in our Christ is born presentations that will happen there in December, as you know, is that toward the end of, of those times, people from our faith community are going to stand and they're going to tell a little bit about their faith story and then they are going to share the gospel through scripture. And we're going to do that as we gather at Christ's Born. I'm looking forward, I, I'm looking at those testimonials that have been written out, talking to those individuals who are sharing, and I, I appreciate the privilege to do that, to get to know their faith story. We need to remind ourselves of our own faith story. You need to remember when. Every one of us needs to remember when. When we were pre-salvation, before our lives were rescued 
by Jesus before we exercise the responsibility of saving faith. It does us a lot of good to remember back then. Why? Because that is supposed to drive the way that we relate to other people. Look at the text again there in Ephesians 4. And really what he is saying to the believers here at Ephesus is, keep on being kind, keep on being compassionate to one another, keep on forgiving one another in the same way that God forgave you in Christ. Your faith story, how did God forgive you? From what were you saved and forgiven? It might do all of us good to sit down with pen and paper and write out our faith story, rehearse it. Become familiar with it again. To be humbled, yes. But also, I think it's one of the most powerful things that we possess to start gospel conversations with other people. And I think all of us should be ready to do that at any time. Think of this. When we forgive others, there is a freedom where we are no longer shackled by our own anger. It moves us from our selfish illusions to a beautiful reality. It is hard work. But letting go of the fantasies that we can change the past, that we can change others, or even that we are the ones who can change ourselves opens room for God to help us ward off the resentment that we feel. Each time we forgive, it paves the way for the next time we need to forgive. Practicing the courage and patience and letting the Lord into the process of forgiveness becomes like exercising a muscle. It grows stronger and stronger. Together with him, we can come to a point where forgiveness is intuitive, a blessed way to live. How can we do that in our own lives whenever we suffer pain at the hands of other people? Maybe you walked in here today and you were just hurting. You're hurting. Something has hurt you, and someone has brought this hurt on you. What are you doing with that offense? Can I talk to you for just a few minutes about what I think will help us all in remaining full of gratitude for being saved from our own sins while we process being hurt by another's sin? You see, that's usually a time when we get tripped up in this. We forget about ourselves being saved from sin, and we're focusing on the offender and all the pain that they've caused us, and if we're not careful, that critical spirit will creep in. What should I do when I find myself hurting? Let me give you a few things. First of all, we need to acknowledge some things. We need, we need to acknowledge the pain, first of all. It is okay to hurt if someone has hurt you, it is okay to experience pain. In fact, especially if that involves some level of loss, it is okay to grieve in any of those situations. It's okay for you to grieve. What do some of us do, maybe most of us, who get caught in this situation where we've been hurt for whatever reason? And we need to forgive someone because of the hurt, but as we focus on the pain if we don't manage it well and deal with it properly, what do we do with that? We kind of stuff it away, don't we? We call that internalizing it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it with the person who offended us. We don't want to talk about it with anybody. We just kind of stuff it away and internalize it. 
It's like a bad seed that we plant in our heart that's going to bring forth bad fruit after a while. Something we don't need and don't want really in our lives. And so we don't deal with the pain well. We don't acknowledge the pain. We don't process it well. We internalize it and it can corrupt us. It can cause us to lack gratitude in our lives and become critical. We need to acknowledge the truth of what happened too. You can't deny it. Don't be in denial about what has happened. Embrace the truth. Hold the truth high. That truly is important in these situations in order to be able to deal with them properly. The other thing we need to do is accept that we can't change the past. And some of us get hung up here because we want to live in the past as it relates to our offense. Someone has sinned. They've hurt us. We've suffered loss as a result. And all we can think about is what happened in the past. The truth is we can't change it, can we? We cannot go back in time and keep it from happening. We can't go back in time and change what has happened to us. So we have a choice. We can accept the fact that we can't change it and that for some reason God has a purpose and a plan in it and he wants to use it to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Or we can live in it. We can drown in it eventually if we so choose. But we need to accept the fact that we can't change it and understand that God has brought it for a reason. The third thing we must do is we need to abdicate our right to seek revenge. Some of us get caught there too, don't we? And a critical spirit creeps in. We, we lose sense of gratitude for all God's done for us and we want to be the judge. We want to be the jury and executioner. We want to take care of this because after all, we have suffered greatly or continue to suffer greatly and we want revenge. If we're going to forgive as God forgave us, we must abdicate our right to seek revenge and make place for his wrath. He has told us, I will seek vengeance. You get out of my way. I know how to do it perfectly. I can do it much better than you can, God says. Get out of my way. Scripture is clear on this. We are not to seek revenge. We must forgive. We need to approach our offender for reconciliation. That's what Matthew 18 is all about. If our brother has sinned against us, the Scripture is clear. We're to go to that one just between us and us alone and seek reconciliation. And hopefully that process goes well. But what if it doesn't? You ever been to one of those? Where someone has sinned and you talk to them and they just, they don't get it. They're not willing to admit it. They're not humble at all. They live in denial. Is there life after that for you? I hope so. Because those are the situations where we as people absolve the offender and leave it with God. Because we do have to move on for the glory of God. We cannot stay living and stuck in that mess. We've tried to be reconciled. We would leave the door open for reconciliation in the future. But if they're not willing, we can't force anything to happen, can we? If we do, if we try we certainly are trying in vain. That's only the work that the Spirit can accomplish. So we should absolve the offender. We should forgive them even if we don't find them worthy of our forgiveness and totally leave that 
with a God who knows all and does all things well. And we can move on from that situation without being stuck there. We must. Otherwise, I think a critical spirit gets the best of us and wins the day. Another thing that is helpful in this battle against a critical spirit is cultivating thankfulness in our heart according to Ephesians 5. Let me read you that. Verse 20. Here's the duty of the believer. Giving thanks always for everything to God who is our Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being thankful to God. Showing gratitude to God always for everything. It's hard to do, isn't it? It is hard to do. You, we've had people in our congregation that have been close to dying. They've been in such physical duress and God has challenged them and God has allowed them even to suffer in that. And yet you talk to them and when they have opportunity to share their heart, they give thanks to God. How is that possible? Well, it's a work of the Spirit. It's a sign that someone is filled with the Spirit of God to be able to give thanks in that way. How does one get there? Can I, can I give you a few things? The first one would be trust. If we're going to give thanks always for everything, you have to trust God with everything. Even the stuff that's just horrible and awful and difficult, life-threatening, you've got to trust Him with that. You've got to know that He's up to only doing what is best for you and only allowing in your life what is absolutely best. Trust him. Secondly, honor him. Show him reverence. Honor him with your words, your actions, your responses in life. May your heart be a place of honor for God that no idols are found there that you truly are loving him and serving him supremely, finding satisfaction in him and him alone. And then it does involve adoration too. Adore him. Adore him. Understand who he is and adore him for who he is and worship him in these times. Need him. All I have is Christ and all I need is Christ. We have to live there. We have to get to the point where we know that we need God in every situation, even the hard things. When we're tempted to think that he has left us or forsaken us, we need him. And finally, know him. Paul speaks about this knowledge in a remarkable way when he says he wanted to know him. The power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings know him. A desire to know him in all aspects helps us, I think, to be thankful to him always for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because it is because of Jesus that all of the things in which we are to be thankful are meaningful to us. We're not just accidentally and incidentally living our lives, but because of Jesus, our life has purpose and meaning. And we know life is not just about the event that we're living through. There's something deeper and more profound to it because of our relationship with God through Jesus. So it's in his name, and that is why.
Finally, to defeat this critical spirit and have hearts full of gratitude, we must have a determination to grow in love. I'm not going to say much about the passage. I just want to read it to you. I want to let the words speak deeply to you about the kind of love that needs to be developed, the determination toward love that we need. This will help us from being critical. You will see that if you have developed a critical spirit, these things are very hard for you. Beginning in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's determine together to grow in this kind of love. Let's determine together to crowd out a critical spirit by allowing gratitude to reign because we are well acquainted with our own frailty and well acquainted with God's grace that keeps us humble.